Chapter Three of *The Heart of the Ancient Wood* by Charles G. D. Roberts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Sandra near Montreal, 2022. The Exiles from the Settlement. Late that afternoon, Christy Craig arrived. Her coming was a migration. The first announcement of her approach was the dull tunk. Tunk a tunk, tunk of cowbells down the trail, at sound of which old Dave threw aside his axe and slouched away to meet her. There was heard a boy's voice shouting with young authority, "Gee, gee, bright, gee, star!" And the head of the procession came into view in the solemn green archway of the woods. The head of the procession was Kirsty Craig herself a tall, erect, strong-stepping, long-limbed woman in blue-grey homespuns, with a vivid scarlet kerchief tied over her head. She was leading by a rope about its horns a meekly tolerant black-and-white cow. To her left hand clung a skipping little figure in a pink calico frock, a broad-brimmed hat of coarse straw flung back from her hair and hanging by ribbons from her neck. This was the five-year-old Miranda, Kirsty Craig's daughter. She had ridden most of the journey and now was full of excited interest over the approach to her new home. Following close behind came the yoke of long-horned, mild-eyed steers, bright, a light sorrel, and star, a curious red and black brindle, with a radiating splash of white in the middle of his forehead. These lurching heavily on the yoke were hauling a rude drag, on which was lashed the meagre pile of Kirsty's belongings and supplies. Close at Star's heaving flank walked a lank and tow-haired boy from the settlement, his long ox-goad in hand and an expression of resigned dissatisfaction on his grey-eyed, ruddy young face. Liking and thoroughly believing in Kirsty Cragg, he had impulsively yielded to her request and let himself be hired to assist her flight into exile but in so doing he had gone roughly counter to public opinion, for the settlement, though stupidly inhospitable to Kirsty Craig, nonetheless resented her decision to leave it. Her scheme of occupying the deserted cabin, farming the deserted clearing, and living altogether aloof from her unloved and unloving fellows, was scouted on every hand as the freak of a mad woman, and young Dave, just coming to the age when public opinion begins to seem important, felt uneasy at being identified with a matter of public ridicule. He saw himself already in imagination, a theme for the fine wit of the settlement. Nevertheless, he was glad to be helping Kirsty, for he was sound and fearless at heart, and he counted her a true friend if she did seem to him a bit queer. He was faithful but disapproving. It was old Dave alone, his father, who backed the woman's venture without criticism or demur. He had known Kirsty from small girlhood, and known her for a brave, loyal, silent, strongly enduring soul, and in his eyes she did well to leave the settlement, where a shallow spite, sharpened by her proud reticence and supplied with arrows of injury by her misfortunes, made life an undesisting and immitigable hurt to her. As she emerged from the twilight and came out upon the sunny bleakness of the clearing, the unspeakable loneliness of it struck a sudden pallor into her grave, dark face. 
For a moment, even the humanity that was hostile to her seemed less cruel than this voiceless solitude. Then her resolution came back. The noble but somewhat immobile lines of her large features relaxed into a half-smile at her own weakness. She took possession, as it were, by a sleeping gesture of her head, then silently gave her hand in greeting to old Dave, who had ranged up beside her and swung the dancing Miranda to his shoulder. Nothing was said for several moments as the party moved slowly up the slope, for they were folk of few words, these people, not praetors like so many of their fellows in the settlement. At last the pink frock began to wriggle on the lumberman's shoulder, and Miranda cried out, "'Let me down, Uncle Dave! I want to pick those pretty flowers for my mother!' The crimson glories of the fireweed had filled her eyes with delight, and in a few minutes she was struggling after the procession with her small arms full of the long-stalked blooms. In front of the cabin door the procession stopped. Dave turned and said seriously, "'I've done the best I could by you, Kirsty, and I reckon it ain't so bad a sight for you after all, but you'll be powerful lonesome.' "'Thank you kindly, Dave, but we ain't going to be lonesome, Miranda and me. "'But there's painters round. You'd ought to have a gun, Kirsty. I'll be sacking out some stuff for you next week, Davy and me, and I reckon as how I'd better fetch you a gun.' "'We'll be right hungry for a sight of your faces by that time, Dave,' said Kirsty, sweeping a look of tenderness over the boy's face where he stood leaning on Star's brindled shoulder. "'But I ain't scared of panthers. Don't you mind about the gun now, for I don't want it, and I won't use it.' "'She ain't scared of nothing that walks,' muttered young Dave with admiration. His strong face darkened. "'Yes, I am, Davy,' she answered. I am afeard of evil tongues. Well, my girl, here, you're well quit of em, said the old lumberman, a slow anger burning on his rough-hewn face as he thought of certain busy backbiters in the settlement. Just then Miranda's small voice chimed in. Oh, Davy, she cried, catching gleefully at the boy's leg. Look at the nice great big dog. And her little brown finger pointed to a cluster of stumps of all sizes and shapes, far over on the limits of the clearing. Her wide brown eyes danced elvishly. The others followed her gaze, all staring intently, but they saw no excuse for her excitement. It might be a bar, she sees, says old Dave, but I can't spot it. There are plenty hereabouts, I suppose, said Kirsty rather indifferently, letting her eyes wander to other portions of her domain. Ain't no bear there, asserted young Dave with all the confidence of his years. It's a stump. Nice big dog. I want it, mother, piped Miranda, suddenly darting away. But her mother's firm hand fell upon her shoulder. There's no big dog out here, child, she said quietly. And old Dave, after puckering his keen eyes and knitting his shaggy brows in vain, exclaimed, Oh, quit your foolin', Mirandy, you little witch. Tain't nothing but stumps, I tell ye. It was the child's eyes, however, that had the keener vision the subtler knowledge, and though now she let herself seem to be persuaded, and obediently carried her armful of fireweed into the cabin, she knew it was no stump she had been looking at. And as for Kroof, the she-bear, though she had indeed sat moveless as a stump among the stumps, she knew that the child had detected her. 
She saw that Miranda had the eyes that see everything and cannot be deceived. For two days the man and the boy stayed at the clearing to help Kirsty get settled. The fields rang pleasantly with the tunk, tunk, a tunk, tunk of the cowbells as the cattle fed over the new pasturage. The edges of the clearing resounded with axe strokes and the busy voices echoed on the autumn air. There was much rough fencing to be built, zigzag arrangements of brush and saplings, in order that Kirsty's critters might be shut in till the sense of home should grow so upon them as to keep them from straying. The two days done, old Dave and young Dave shouldered their axes and went away. Kirsty forthwith straightened her fine shoulders to the atlas load of solitude which had threatened at first to overwhelm her, and she and Miranda settled down to a strangely silent routine. This was broken, however, at first by weekly visits from old Dave, who came to bring hay and roots and other provisions against the winter, together with large hanks of coarse homespun yarn to occupy Kirsty's fingers during the long winter evenings. Kirsty was well fitted to the task she had so bravely set herself. She could swing an axe, and the fencing grew steadily through the fall. She could guide the plough, and before the snow came some ten acres of the long fallow sod had been turned up in brown furrows, to be ripened and mellowed by the frosts for next spring's planting. The black and white cow was still in good milk, and could be depended on not to go dry a day more than two months before calving. The steers were thrifty and sleek, and showed no signs of fretting for old pastures. The hoarse but homely music of the cowbells, sounding all day over the fields, and giving out an occasional soft tonk-a-tonk from the darkness of the stalls at night, came to content her greatly. The lines which she had brought from the settlement smoothed themselves from about her mouth and eyes, and the large, sufficing beauty of her face was revealed in the peace of her new life. About seven years before this move to the cabin in the clearing, Kirsty Craig, then Kirsty McAllister, had gone one evening to the crossroads grocery which served the settlement as general intelligence office. Here was the post office as well in a corner of the store, fitted up with some dozen of lettered and dusty pigeonholes, nodding soberly to the loafers who lounged about on the soap boxes and nail kegs, Kirsty stepped up to the counter to buy a quart of molasses. She was just passing over her gaudy blue and yellow pitcher to be filled when a stranger came in who caught her attention. He did far more than catch her attention for the stately and sombre girl who had never before taken pains to look twice on any man's face now felt herself grow hot and cold as this stranger's eyes glanced carelessly over her splendid form. She heard him ask the postmaster for lodgings. He spoke in a tired voice and accents that set him apart from the men of the settlement. She looked at him twice, and yet again noted with a pang that he seemed ill, and met his eye fairly for just one heartbeat. At once she flushed scarlet under it, snatched up her pitcher and almost rushed from the store. The loafers were too much occupied with the new arrival to notice her perturbation but he noticed it and was pleased. Never before had he seen so splendid a girl as this black-haired, sphinx-faced creature with the scarlet kerchief about her head. She was a picture that awoke the artist in him and put him in haste to resume his palette and brushes. 
for Frank Craig, dilettante and man of the world, was a good deal of an artist when the mood seized him strongly enough. When another mood seized him with sufficient vigor to overcome his native indolence, he was something of a musician, and again more rarely something of a poet. The temperament was his, but the steadiness of purpose, the decision of will, the long-enduring patience, these were not. He had just enough money to let him float through his world without work. Health he had not, and the poor semblance of it which mere youth supplied he had squandered childishly. Hearing of new health in the gift of the northern spruce woods with their high, balsam, sweet airs, he had drifted away from his temptations and at last sought out this remote backwoods settlement as a place where he might expect to get much for little. He was very good to look upon, about as tall as Kirsty herself, slender, active, alert in movement when not wearied, thoroughbred in every line of face and figure. His eyes of a very deep grayish green under long black lashes were penetrating in their clearness, but curiously unstable. In their beautiful depths there was waged forever a strange conflict between honesty and inconstancy. His face, pale and sallow, was closed with a trimly pointed close dark beard, and his hair, just a trifle more abundant than the fashion of his world approved, was of a peculiar tawny dark bronze. The air of the settlement was healing and tonic to the lungs, and before he had breathed it a month, he felt himself aglow with joyous life. Before he had breathed it a month, he had won Kirsty McAllister, to whom he seemed little less than a god. To him, on her part, she was a splendid mystery. Even her peculiarities of grammar and accent did no more than lend a piquancy to her strangeness. They appealed as a rough, fresh flavor to his wearied senses. Here, safe from the wasting world, he would really paint, would really write, and life would come to mean something. One day he and Kirsty went away on the rattling old mail wagon which visited the settlement twice a week. Ten days later they came back as man and wife, whereat the settlement showed no surprise whatever. For a whole year after the birth of his child, the great-eyed and fairy-like Miranda, Frank Craig stayed at the settlement seemingly content. He was loving, admiring, tactful, proud of his dark, impressive wife and the quickness with which she caught his purity of speech. Then one day he seemed restless. He talked of business in the city, of a month's absence that could not be avoided. With a kind of terror at her heart, Kirsty heard him, but offered no hint of opposition to so reasonable a purpose. And by the next trip of the rattling mail wagon he went, leaving the settlement dark to Kirsty's eyes, but he never came back. The months rolled by, and no word came of him, and Kirsty gnawed her heart out in proud anguish. Inquiry throughout the cities of the coast brought no hint of him. Then, as the months climbed into years, that tender humanity which resents misfortune as a crime started a rumor that Kirsty had been fooled. Perhaps there had been no marriage, went the whisper at first. Served her right with her airs, thinking she could catch a gentleman was the next development of it. Kirsty, with her superior air, had never been popular at best, and after her marriage the sufficiency and exclusiveness of her joy, coupled with the comparative fineness of speech which she adopted, 
made her the object of jealous criticism through all the countryside. When the temple of her soaring happiness came down about her ears, then was the time for her chastening, and the gossips of the settlement took a hand in it with right good will. Nothing else worth talking about happened in that neighborhood during the next few years, so the little rumor was cherished and nourished. Presently it grew to a great scandal, and the gossips came to persuade themselves that things had not been as they should be. Kirsty, they said, was being very properly punished by Providence, and it was well to show that they, chaste souls, stood on the side of Providence. If Providence threw a stone, it was surely their place to throw three. At last some one of imagination vivid beyond that of the common run added a new feature— Someone else had heard from someone else of someone having seen Frank Craig in the city. There was at first a difference of opinion as to what city, but that little discrepancy was soon smoothed out. Then a woman was suggested, and forthwith it appeared that he had been seen driving with a handsome woman behind a spanking pair with liveried coachman and a footman on the box. Thus gradually the myth acquired a colour to endear it to the unoccupied rural imagination. Kirsty's inquiries soon proved to her the utter baselessness of the scandal, but she was too proud to refute what she knew to be a cherished lie. She endured for Miranda's sake till the dark face grew lined and the black eyes smouldered dangerously, and she began to fear lest she should do someone a hurt. At last, having heard by chance of that deserted clearing in the forest, she sold out her cottage at a sacrifice and fled from the bitter tongues. End of chapter 3